You are listening to If These Woods Could Talk, a production of the Rhinelander District Library and part of the WXPR Community Podcast Project, an initiative to amplify community voices. More info can be found at wxpr.org. In this edition of If These Woods Could Talk, Bob Martini shares first-hand knowledge of Wisconsin's history at the forefront of water conservation policy. Bob has been speaking on this topic for decades, and his expertise on the matter is evident. I hope you enjoy learning with Bob Martini. Wisconsin started out as a natural resources exploitive economy. At first they exploited the furs in northern Wisconsin, then onto the lumber and, and timber industry where they really didn't have any restrictions at all about cutting timber. In fact, in many cases they cut timber that didn't even belong to the companies that cut it. Then the mining occurred in, in the Gogebic Range up in the northwest. Uh, that was an exploitive technology as well. Very few restrictions. All of these economies had impacts on the natural resources. The tourism economy itself exploited the fact that we had really good fishing and hunting in this area, but there weren't any restrictions on fishing and hunting. So populations declined, those game fish, for instance, that were targeted. So each of these exploitive natural resources economies had adverse effects on the timber and the mining resource as well as the, uh, the impact of mining on surface water, the fish and wildlife uh, that were exploited by the various industries. And these industries helped civilize the area. The, the towns and communities in this area were built on those economies. Rhinelanders is a good example. Right? The paper mill uh, uh, certainly has affected thousands of lives in Rhinelander uh, positively. I mean, there was, there was strong salaries, strong careers, generations of people and families worked at the mill and, and had, had a good living. But there are side effects to that. The same is true of the of the sawmills in Rhinelander. There were dozens of sawmills in this area cutting the virgin timber. The timber that was that had grown for 400 years was exploited in less than 70 years in this general area. And uh, only the prime top timber was cut, the rest of it was wasted. Another example is uh, hemlock. Uh, the uh, Milwaukee area tanneries at one time produced more leather than any other city in the world. They took the hides from Chicago, stockyards, and tanned them in Milwaukee. They were tanned using hemlock bark. Hemlock bark was the only source of leather tanning chemicals at the time. The hemlock bark came from northern Wisconsin. 
The hemlock trees, some of them five feet in diameter, were cut for their bark. The trees were left to rot. They overexploited the hemlock populations. They don't uh, regenerate as well because they're fed on by deer and other things. So we have very few hemlock now compared to what the original forest contained. We also have very few old growth forests in northern Wisconsin. Less than 1% of the forests that were originally here as old growth are present today. So there are all kinds of implications from that, that the habitats change, the populations of, of organisms change, and there are a number of organizations in northern Wisconsin that are trying to protect what we have left, the remnants of the forest, the remnants of the fish and wildlife populations. And these, these are raised from government agencies like the Wisconsin DNR, where I worked for 32 years, to uh, nonprofits like the Northwoods Land Trust, which tries to protect land in six counties, whether it's Wisconsin Green Fire, which I serve as a board member of, uh, which is dedicated to science-based natural resource management, not political management. Uh, Riverlands of Wisconsin, Texas Rivers. There's a whole series of wetlands groups and all sorts of groups in Wisconsin that are attempting to try to protect what we have left and try to make sure that science-based natural resource management uh, is, is used instead of political decision-making. In every case that's been studied, from Aldo Leopold on, science-based natural resource management is shown to not only protect the resource, but also to protect the economy, uh, because the economy depends on sustainable natural resources. We are not a, a manufacturing economy here. We depend on tourism and sustainable natural resources management. So with that as a backdrop, there are a series of impacts that we suffered in this area. Uh, I worked on water quality for 50 years, and the biggest water quality problems were in the Wisconsin River, the largest river in the state, 430 miles of river, 26 hydro dams, 21 storage reservoirs. They called it the hardest working river in America because it really worked hard, and it showed it. But when I started in 1976, if you went below Rhineland, below the paper mill, down at Hat Rapids Dam, the entire flowage from the dam on up was covered with sludge. And that sludge was a direct result from untreated discharge from the paper mill. Those solids would move downstream, settle to the bottom, and then in the summer, when the water warmed up, they would decay anaerobically, and those gases would rise the sludge to the surface where they dried in a kind of a crust across the entire floors. Small animals could run right across the floors on that crust. It was so thick. The, the, there was so much sludge that the owner of the dam, Wisconsin Public Service Corporation, couldn't operate the turbines at maximum efficiency because there was so much sludge in the water. It wasn't pure water right through, which is the way the hydros are designed. It was water infused with sludge. So they built a boom across the foliage wooden boom to try to gather the surface sludge. They pumped it over the hill into an unlined pit, which then contaminated groundwater. That stuff is still there. There's several feet of that sludge, uh, I mean, uh, over that berm that's now buried with two or three feet of soil, but it's still down there. I mean, it contains all the contaminants that came from the mill, all the chemicals that went into pulping and paper manufacture, plus all the side chemicals. So for instance, in the mill, they used arsenic compounds and mercury compounds 
as slimicides to prevent slime from forming inside the pipes, inside the mill. Well, obviously those are toxic, so they were discharged <clears throat> along with the other pollutants. Uh, now, and we know exactly when those arsenic and mercury compounds were discontinued as a result of regulation. So when I first started, we went down and, and did a core at Hat Rapids of all that sediment, six foot core. There was a lot more than six feet, but we took a six foot core, froze it, sectioned it into sections, and then analyzed for mercury and arsenic so we could determine how old those sediments were. How long does it take to put 10 or 12 feet of sediment in a river? We found that in the upper six feet was only about 65 years of sediment. Of course, the mill had been in operation for 100 years. So there was a lot of material going into the river. I can cut in. Go ahead. What, what does that say about the, the uh, sorry, what's, what's deeper than that? What's the below those six feet that you said? Well, it hasn't been analyzed because uh, as a result of the Clean Water Act, which was passed in 1972, we started working on a waste load allocation of the Wisconsin River, which means you allocate a certain amount of waste to each paper mill and municipality in the river. There were 15 pumping paper mills, 65 communities discharged into the Wisconsin River. All of those had a load, pollutant load. We calculated using a rudimentary computer model, calculated exactly how much waste each mill and each city could put in the river each day depending on the flow of the river and the temperature of the water and the season of the year. So those three factors determine how fast the waste is going to decay, what kind of oxygen demand that decay will have, and where the critical points are going to be in the river. Our model divided the river from Rhinelander to Petenwell into one-tenth of a mile segments. For each segment, we characterize the depth and the geometry of the river cross-section, the chemistry of the water, the algae dynamics, re-aeration, all kinds of things went into this model. And using that model then, we calculated exactly how much each mill and city could discharge each day depending on those characteristics, flow, temperature, and season. Then we put those requirements into legally enforceable permits so that we didn't have to go out to the river and say, ah, there's a low oxygen level, you caused it, and then have to prove in court that the oxygen level in the river was caused by this discharger's discharge. We had tried that for 20 years in Wisconsin, it doesn't work. This case, all you have to do is show that they violated the permit. The permit reflects what the river is doing out there. Uh, it determines you know, how much oxygen will be in the water with each level of discharge. So it was enforceable for the first time in 100 years. After that was, uh, was finished, we put those permits in every municipality and every municipality or every uh, paper mill so that they were all subject to the same voice load allocation. And then we started enforcing. Eventually, we cut back the waste by 93% in the river. The river cleansed itself. We had some big storms like the flood of 93, for instance, washed all that sediment out, went downstream. Each dam had sediment loads, but the tremendous hydraulic force of those floods took it all downstream, and now it's a problem in the Gulf of Mexico. The Gulf of Mexico has a big dead zone the size of Connecticut. And the reason for that is that everybody up on the river did the same thing after the Clean Water Act was passed. 
they stop the discharge of waste and let all that waste go downstream to make it to be somebody else's problem. Uh, the, the solution is don't put the stuff in there in the first place. Don't make the mess instead of trying to clean up the mess. You know, our mothers were right. Don't make the mess instead of trying to clean up the mess. It's easier and everybody benefits. So, of course, there's a political side to this too. Everyone in the valley knows that paper was the main industry in every, all the major cities in the valley. All of the elected officials in the valley said, if you cut back on paper mills, these mills will move to Alabama or someplace where there aren't any restrictions. Or they'll just lay off their people and go out of business. They can't do it. You can't survive these cuts and still sustain a paper industry. Well, just the opposite happened. No mills moved to Alabama. No mills shut down. No people were laid off. In fact, jobs were created because a whole new industry of wastewater treatment was developed as a result of those restrictions. Some of the big uh, technical companies in Wisconsin were directly related to that action. The requirement that everybody does wastewater treatment uh, improved companies like Rexnord and others in Wisconsin that concentrated on the technology and the equipment and the savvy and the operation of wastewater treatment plants. So that was a whole new industry. In addition, the technical directors at the paper mills told me after it was all over, not for dissemination to the press, but they told me that this saved the paper industry because the paper industry is water dependent, fiber dependent, and energy dependent. Those three things are really important in the paper industry. Every one of those technical directors said that these restrictions required that they redo their industrial processes to save fiber, water, and energy. Those three things were required in order to get the waste down to a concentration that was efficient enough to put in wastewater treatment and remove the waste. The more concentrated a waste is, the more efficient the wastewater treatment plant can be. If you have really dilute waste, a wastewater treatment plant isn't efficient at all. It's not cost effective. Well, in addition to taking all that junk out of the river before it went into the river, they then started using that residual. A lot of the stuff that went into the river, like the black liquor, for instance, is now sent to companies that have made over 60 products that they sell from the stuff that used to go in the river and contaminate the water. Now they sell it as byproducts. Things like uh, vanilla, for instance, is made from the black liquor. Uh, drilling muds, all kinds of things are made from the materials that are taken out of the wastewater before it's discharged to the river. There's a lot of clay in um, paper making. That clay was then used in drilling muds. There's a lot of fiber used in paper milling. Uh, some of those fibers that couldn't stay on the sheet were then removed and have been composted and used in central Wisconsin where they have sandy soil and they need fiber, they need organic matter in the soil. So it was sold to those people with clay, nitrogen, and fiber. The three things that farmers need to add to their soil in central Wisconsin, because it's sandy and not very fertile. They need organic matter to hold water, they need nitrogen for fertilizer, and they need uh, the clay to try to change the mixture of sand and clay to make a better soil for growing the vegetables. They're one of the best vegetable growing areas in the nation.
So they all benefited. They, they, it was just the opposite of what they predicted was going to happen. And this is a theme that cuts across the, the various issues that I worked on. Worked on the cleanup of the Wisconsin River, the, the, the cleanup and research on acid rain, aldicarb in groundwater from potato growing in the central sands, and the relicensing of the 26 dams of the river. All of them had the same pattern. They all started out saying, the industry started out saying, we'll go out of business, we'll move out of Wisconsin, no, we'll be able to afford it. It turned out just the opposite. So a second example is acid rain. We started working on acid rain in 1979. We were told by our own DNR not to work on it. That's an Ohio problem, that's a New York problem. Well, don't even work on it. We were ordered to stop. So we went to EPA Duluth and got about $2 million worth of funding to do thousands of lakes, sample thousands of lakes, sample the air to determine what the snow and rain had as far as pollutants, and then to determine how to, how to fix this problem. We did that. We found that although DNR said not to work on it, our rainfall in northern Wisconsin was 10 to 100 times as acid as normal. And that was just as bad as New York. But we had thousands of lakes susceptible to acid rain. We estimated we had 2,000 lakes that could have been acidified in northern Wisconsin with 10 to 100 times as acid as normal rainfall. Some of them were already acidified. There were about a dozen where we already showed that they were acidified. So we went publicly. And all over the state, I gave, I gave 36 speeches on acid rain all over the state. The press picked it up. It gained momentum. Then the DNR in the central office says, well, you know, you got the data, let's, let's run with this. And Tony Earle was the one that, that changed the whole thing around when he was the secretary of DNR. After that, we started working on controls. And there again, utilities said the same thing. We go out of business. People won't be able to afford their kilowatts. They'll move out of the state. Businesses will move out of the state. It'd be too expensive. So we told the utilities, look, you, you calculated this cost all wrong. Don't take the sulfur out of the air when you're out of your stacks. Don't put the sulfur in in the first place. Don't try to clean up the mess. Prevent the mess in the first place. Go out to the west where they have low sulfur coal. Nobody wanted low sulfur coal in the 80s because it had to be transported. That cost was greater. And the BTUs were a little bit lower in low sulfur coal. So Eastern Coal had higher BTUs and it was closer to the power plants. That's what everybody wanted. Go out to the west, buy low sulfur coal, and that'll reduce the sulfur. It's causing the acid that causes the lakes to be acidified. We got that passed in the Wisconsin legislature. Republicans and Democrats worked together at that time. They weren't like it is now where everything is off the table. You can't do anything good for society now because they don't talk at all. At that time, once you showed them that the data was there and that science backed natural resource management, they went along with it. Utilities went off to the west. They, they uh, locked in 30-year low sulfur coal contracts. They implemented that. They used that fuel in the same power plants that were out there before. They didn't change the power plants. They didn't build scrubbers or anything like that. They just used different coal. The sulfur dropped dramatically. The rainfall acidity changed dramatically. The lakes, a dozen or so that were acidified, uh, went back to normal because of natural buffering capacity in the watershed. Everybody gained. In addition, 
Because they locked those folks off with cold contracts in for 30 years, eventually our Senator Gaylord Nelson, who was the chair of the Environment and Public Works Committee in the, in the Congress, tried to make sure that the Wisconsin experience was implemented all over the United States, and he was successful. It got implemented in federal law, almost exactly the same law that was passed in Wisconsin. Well, then everybody wanted to vote sulfur coal. You know, the price skyrocketed. For 30 years, we had some of the lowest cost kilowatts in the nation because we had looked ahead with the science, figured out how to take care of the problem, implemented it, and then everybody else who were lagging behind eventually came into the market, jacked up the price because demand went up. We were sitting with the 30-year contracts at the original price that caused us to have the lowest kilowatt prices. Just the opposite of what was predicted. The same thing happened with Eldercar in the central sands. Eldercar is a pesticide that kills Colorado potato bales on the potato plants. There's only one company that made it. That was Union Carbide. And they decided that their marketing campaign would say you cannot tolerate even one Colorado potato beetle on a, on a potato plant. You'll lose your yields. You can't even have one. You have to use our product to kill those Colorado potato beetles. So they bought it. The potato use growers all over the Central Sands were using this stuff. The problem is they were also irrigating in large amounts. So that water was leaching the elder down into the groundwater along with nitrogen or everything else there, because the soil is sandy. It had no organic matter to hold those chemicals in the surface, so when it irrigated, it brought all those materials down into the groundwater. In some cases, potato growers were drinking their own elder Their families were drinking their own elder with nitrogen because they were leaching it out of the top layers of the soil. They said the same thing. We can't do without elder We'll go out of business. We can't grow potatoes. If the company just told us you can't have a single potato beetle on a plant. So we said, well, let's turn to the science again. Science-based natural resource management, just what Greenfire is saying. Now, let's figure out how many beetles can be on a plant before you lose your yield. Went to UW Experiment Station in Hancock, gave them the question. They did all these plots, did all the research, and found out you could tolerate maybe eight nine beetles on a plant before your yield went down. That meant you didn't have to use Elicard. It was all a marketing campaign. Elicard was expensive. It was the most expensive pesticide on the market at that time. They had a monopoly. Nobody else made systemic pesticides for Colorado potatoes. We got the legislature to ban it on, on uh, sandy soils. Again, the legislature was talking to each other between Democrats and Republicans, not like now. They, once the science and the data was there, they went ahead and banned Eldercarb on sandy soils that could get to the groundwater. Just the opposite of what they said would happen. happen. The Eldercarb was so expensive per acre, including the cost of the pesticide and twice application costs, that they were making more per acre without Eldercarb than they were with it. And in addition, they weren't contaminating their own groundwater that their own families were drinking. Just the opposite of what they said. And in all of these cases, people were basing their opinions on theory, 
They were being affected by the vested interests that benefited from having paper mill pollution or exploitation of forests or use of elephant. They financially benefited from not restricting those activities. The science shows there are other ways of doing it. We did it and it turned out better for everybody. The, the grower in this case got more per acre profit. The uh, groundwater was protected and the public rights to those groundwaters are protected. So individual families aren't drinking their own elevator. Dams are another situation. We, uh, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission regulates all hydro dams in America. We have 26 hydro dams on the Wisconsin River. That's one of the reasons they call it the hardest river in America. Each one of those dams affects the river. It changes the water dramatically. First of all, it prevents fish from moving up and down. The fish that live in the Wisconsin River are migratory. They want to go 200, 300 miles if they're unobstructed to en enable them to carry out their life processes, spawning, feeding, growth, winter habitat. All those things are, diff are, are important in different parts of the river. So we have to seek out a certain habitat for spawning, another habitat for growth, another habitat for winter. Those kinds of things are happening in rivers all the time. That's why fish move, so that they can individually be healthy, but also so their population can be healthy. When you put 26 hydro dams on there, they can't move at all. They are stuck with that one little reservoir instead of 300 miles of river to find their habitats. A good example is mussels. We had dozens of species of mussels on the river before the dams. They were gone because of pollution and inability of the fish to move. Mussels, uh, larval mussels attached to fish's gills. These little tiny little larval mussels, you can't even see them. They ride with the fish for quite a while until they're big enough to act on their own as a muscle. Then they drop off the fish into the sediment and continue their life cycle. These fish then could repopulate all the mussel species throughout the whole river if there was a problem. If, if they were, there was a drought, for instance, and all the mussels died in one area, you could repopulate that whole area because the fish were moving and dropping off these larval mussels everywhere they went. Each mussel species has an obligate host. There's only one, usually one fish species that has the larval mussels in their gills. Well, when the dams went in, the fish couldn't move. Therefore, the mussels couldn't reestablish themselves in all these areas where they formerly were. That's a big problem, in addition to the fish having problems. And of course, both the fish and the mussels were eradicated because of the pollution but they couldn't reestablish themselves because of the dams. So we went, went through this whole process and tried to get fish passage and all, a lot of other things. The dams also create impoundments, which warm water. Warm water carries less oxygen than cold water. So the fisheries that really needed a lot of oxygen, like smallmouth bass, were in trouble because the water was warmer and it had less oxygen. Uh, in addition, the warmer water creates more algae. Uh, it creates a big flowage that's susceptible to sunlight. It collects sunlight because the area is greater, but the water is also warmer, so it creates tremendous growths of algae. We have algae problems and flowages all up and down the Wisconsin River, not only because of the natural 
uh, characteristic, but because non-point source pollution from farms has never been regulated. So all of these issues were, were dam issues, and we wanted to make sure that when the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission renews the 35-year licenses for each dam, that they had protections for fish and wildlife and endangered species and uh, recreation and water quality, even archaeology on these flowages. There's 16 different plans that these licensees have to do to get a new license. All of them protect the public interest. The public interest in archaeology, the public interest in water quality, fish, wildlife, endangered species, you know, all those things, safety, recreation, all those things are built into those licenses. So we went to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, commented on all the license renewals on the river and the rest of the state, and told them, look, these are the public uses of this water. These are the assets that the public own. You've got to protect those in the federal license. And the FERC agreed with us. We got millions of dollars worth of everything from fish passage to uh, fishing piers, trails, boat landings, uh, fish habitat improvements, wildlife and waterfall improvements, all kinds of safety requirements, you know, built into those licenses that weren't there before. The average for each of those 26 dams is about $5 million in amenities for the public that weren't in the previous license. No tax dollars involved. They all came right out of the utilities and they said the exact same thing to everybody else. We can't operate this. We'll go out of business. We'll get rid of all these dams. We'll take all these dams out. None of that happened. They're all still there. Not a single dam was removed. All of them are still producing power with water, which is really good because you're not burning coal or gas or anything else. No fossil fuels being involved. It's really good to produce electricity with water. But the public rights are protected under these licenses, uh, which is different from what they had before. The public gained. There was no cost to the public. It was, it was built into the rate structure for the utilities. Everybody benefited. Just the opposite of what they said was going to happen. And this sort of thing happens over and over again. The fear tactics that are used to try to get people to oppose regulation uh, that protects the environment or anything else uh, are, are not based on fact. That's why science-based natural resource management is the only way to go. You can't use politics, you can't use theory, social media, any of the other stuff that's used to try to influence people's attitudes don't work like scientific natural research management does. And that's what we learned from all of these issues. We started out with an exploitation economy, which took advantage of the resources at the resources expense, which indirectly affected the citizens' ownership of those resources. The value went down of their assets. We, we moved toward a regulation situation where they still did the same thing in the, in the economy, but they did it in a way that protected the public's rights and the rights of the environment. It's a success story all across the board in the last 50 years. So what did they do? They want to get rid of the Clean Water Act. They want to emasculate the Clean Water Act and remove those provisions that affect industry. Not even talking about the benefits we've already seen in history and documented in each of these cases. The pattern is there, but they're now trying to uh, reduce the effectiveness of all regulatory programs.
in order to save a little short-term money at the expense of the long-term values. And all of this was done with science workers, not necessarily scientists. You know, we weren't people that were doing uh, peer-reviewed scientific papers as a topic. It was our job as science workers to go to the scientists, read all of their peer-reviewed documents, try to figure out how to apply it to individual problems on a river like paper mills and algar, acid rain and dams. And use those those data that were established without political influence to try to come up with a system that not only accomplishes the goal of protecting those resources and the public's rights, but also protects the industries, prevent them from adverse economic effect. And in fact, what happened is they got enhanced. The environment was enhanced and the economy was enhanced at the same time. So, it, you know, it's the way to go. Science-based natural resources. And the people who did that work, were, uh, most in most cases, were great people, science people, committed. Uh, there are a lot of them who would have worked without salary, I think, because they really believed in this stuff. Plus, they had the education and the experience to understand the science and interpret it in a way that would affect each of these problems. Some of them are still living around here. And they should all be proud of it, but they didn't get credit. Most of them worked. Uh, Oiled in obscurity. You know, they, they never knew who was doing this work, but some of them are still here, like Ron Becker, for instance, who worked a lot of acid rain and, and paper mill stuff. And Joe Eilers and uh, John Sullivan and Kathy Webster, a whole host of people. I could name 50 science workers from Rhinelander and Madison, in addition to a whole bunch of university professors, other agencies like the Fish and Wildlife Service. And the, USGS, US Geological Survey, others who contributed in their expertise. They contributed their disciplines, knowledge, and experience to make sure that the entire package protected the environment and protected the economy at the same time. It's a success story all across the board. And what irritates me now is that in the present mode, where we have serious problems like PFAS and the big one, climate change. We're seeing climate deniers, science deniers that want to totally ignore what we've already learned. We've developed this process. The process works. Now they want to ignore it and go to a political process, which we've already demonstrated does not work, either for the environment or for the economy. So that's frustrating. We need to move away from that and continue what we've learned over the past 50 years in science-based natural resource management. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to If These Woods Could Talk, a production of Rhinelander District Library and part of the WXPR Community Podcast Project, an initiative to amplify community voices. For more community podcasts or for podcasts produced by WXPR, Go to WXPR.org and look for a Podcasts tab. Or just search for WXPR Public Radio anywhere you get podcasts. Also, a special thanks to the Old Pine Road Band for the musical theme. To learn how you can record your own story of the Northwoods, or to suggest a topic or storyteller, contact the library or check out the website at RhinelanderLibrary.org. 